Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we're a little behind schedule, but it's summer, you know. And we had a family reunion and stuff. Yeah, that was fun. So you had a topic, right? It wasn't really a topic. So per your suggestion, I read The Real Lolita. By Sarah Weinman. Before I listened to that on Audible, I listened to Lolita, which I hadn't read before by Nabokov. It is good to read the book Lolita before reading her book. I had a lot of issues with the book, which a lot of people would. With Lolita or her book? With Lolita, not her book. I'm trying to phrase this. It's hard to get past the subject matter, and I understand what he was kind of doing, but I think like a lot of things, people don't get it. So I just want to say how I feel about it, and then you can say what you think. I looked online to see what other people said after I read it, because I'm like, am I the only person that it it gives me an icky feeling, this book? And I'm sure that's what he meant. But I read shit like, oh, like the movie wasn't as good as the book because it didn't focus on the love story between Dolores and uh, Humbert. Humbert. And I'm like, there isn't a love story. And there were several comments about the quote love story. It's not a love story. The other issue I had is any movie adaptation that's made cannot really be a true adaptation of the book because he is a pedophile. The book makes clear he's a pedophile. He likes little girls that look like little girls. He doesn't like a seductress who looks more mature than she is, which is how the movie's always, and how it's always portrayed. And the word Lolita has become a word that kind of means that. No, he makes it clear because it's through his point of view that he likes little girls that look like little girls that are not developed they are little girls that's why it's disgusting and that's why they can never really make a true movie of the book because it would disgust people which is what i believe he was trying to do but people totally miss the point and take it at face value which is what the book the real lolita kind of talks about i just was frustrated after reading nabokov's book And understanding that he was not condoning pedophilia and he himself is not a pedophile, but the fact that it's through the point of view of this disgusting person who is a pedophile, you know, like he talks about nymphettes and certain little girls that are seductive and blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's his twisted interpretation of them they aren't seductive they are little children and the thing that killed me is when i used to read police reports or interviews when i worked as a legal secretary that's the same thing that those fucking pedophiles would say oh this 10 year old girl she was coming on to me she was not fucking coming on to you she is 10 years old so i don't have anything against his book and of course it's beautifully written and for somebody that was not a native English speaker his command of the language and it's really a good book but the subject matter is difficult and if a reader is somebody who has been abused that would probably be triggering because Humbert Humbert he justifies his behavior throughout the book and it's and also since it was written in the 1950s yes it does have some points of view that were standard then. Yes, yes, they that, were. That aren't but, And those didn't bother me as 70s. much. What as... did you think of the Sarah Weinman book? I thought it was really good. Just a reminder to listeners, her book wasn't just about 
Nabokov writing Lolita, it was about a case of a girl who was kidnapped and held Sally Horner, yeah. for two years by this guy from 1948 to 1950 that Nabokov used not as a basis for Lolita, but to help inform his yes. writing. And the big deal about that is, he, and as a writer, I can tell you, he was full of shit. He always claimed that all his writing came purely from his creative mind with nothing in the world around him Which, having an impact to me, on it. With that kind of subject matter, he would have been better off not saying that. But she made it clear he had the idea in his head before. He probably did do some research. He obviously knew about it because it is mentioned in the book. And I noticed the mention in the book probably because you had talked about it. I, I, I believe I did both. an NNW review two episodes ago. It was two episodes. Yeah. And that's why I listened to them. So yeah. I just wanted to say, if you are a person who has read Lolita or has not read it, like I said, if you have childhood abuse, that might be something you want to think about before you read it because it's through the point of view of the abuser and he's a piece of shit i don't understand the people that think it's a love story it perpetuates the disgusting and just as i said <sighs> when i did my review there are a lot of people in the world who are bad readers they don't use any critical thinking skills they don't understand reading or what they're reading i blame readers i blame people who read yeah. for that because it's not hard to understand and maybe back in the 50s maybe it was harder to i would say as a, a normal reader maybe you would have had a harder time picking things up but when you're reading it now in the present with all the information we have about sexual abuse of minors and stuff there's parts where he says things that you as the reader are like no shit. He mentions a couple times about her crying when they're having sex or whatever. And it's like, no shit, buddy. Because she doesn't, she doesn't right. like. And there's certain things he says where you looking at it are like, buddy, you're fucking kidding oh, yourself. Right. Nabokov is telling you, but the fact that it's through the point of view and he doesn't right. veer from that point of view. And I think which too, is right. hard. And I think people don't learn to read in a critical way. Yeah. They don't understand things like point of view. In the real Lolita, I think uh, Sarah Weinman pointed out that Nabokov's wife said she feared that people would not understand that the hero of the book is Dolores, yes. not the Humbert Humbert. Yeah. And she was right. And she was right. I know this might and be we, an unpopular opinion, but I, I hate Stanley Kubrick. You, um, but also the whole perception of this young seductress and they always portray her as a that's not right. even the right that's just the patriarchy's view of women and helps support the fact that we can't get around crimes against women and children but i do have a topic on a oh, completely good. 180 degree turn from what we were just talking Sounds about good. i was just watching the nbc news before we started recording tonight and they had a report on how Kroger Supermarkets is experimenting with all self-checkout supermarkets. Mm. And people are like, oh, I hate the self-checkout. I hate the Oh, it's so hard. Like one grocery store manager is saying, well, I don't see many people with gray hair at the self-checkout. The young people like it, but the old. <laughs> and then Peter Alexander, who was the anchor tonight, was yes. like, yeah, like it's so hard when you have the organic broccoli to, to skin in it or whatever. So I just want to say in defense of the self-checkout, which I use 99% mm -hmm. of the time. I like it. I think our supermarket, the chain we go to Hannaford, does it very well. I don't try to scan things like the organic broccoli. Like it showed on there, somebody trying, oh, these bananas, I can't scan them. Ugh. You know, there's a button for find item. 
I type in banana and yeah, all the bananas, no right? And it's very easy. And frankly, at Hannaford, I go to the big one on Witten Road in Augusta. They have eight or 10 self-checkout things. And I notice more old people using them and doing it right than young people. Dad, young people is, Dad to, loves it. I know, as do I. So I, I just like want to- Like 99% of the right. time. Right. And that whole- report which was kind of a long report for nbc nightly news was from the point of view that people don't like it and this is kind of being forced on them and people have trouble with it and it's so inefficient such pain in the ass i don't know how kroger does it or any other stores but i can say at hannaford i love the self-checkout my only issue is some of the stores like the one in topsum it's an inconveniently spaced one but that doesn't have anything to do with the self-checkout well, itself you know this whole thing like oh old people have so much trouble with modern technology and young people that. don't and, and modern things are so hard it's all bullshit self-checkout awesome big yes. thumbs up five yes. stars Loving the self-checkout, and I felt like that news report was unnecessarily tropey about yes. things. I use it at Shaw's, too, sometimes, and there seems oh, to see, be okay. See, I've been boycotting they don't, Shaw's. Not all the, well, I only go when I have, but years. not all of the Shaw's have it, which is weird. Right. But Hannaford, the one I go to, I go to that big one on Forest Avenue oh, most wow. of the time. Yeah, the... They have it on both ends now. They have one end that has about six. It's no oh, cash wow. at all. It's card only, which confuses many a person. And it's kind of an express, but not necessarily. And then they have one on the other end that has about, like, about a dozen of them. And there you can use cash. cash card. So they've set it up very well. Hannaford, I will say, anytime they roll out a new program, they they've, do a good job. Right. But what bugs me is I worked at Lowe's and Home Depot. The customers that complain, well, I'm doing your job for you. Do I get a discount? No, you don't. You know what? We already have a very low margin. You're fucking right. lucky. Would you rather? There's nobody here to work. What do I know. you want? Like at Hannaford, they always have a person there. Right. That can help you. To the report tonight that. showing people using the self-checkout reminds me of those cheesy ads on TV for oh, products. Yeah. Like, oh, isn't putting things in your closet yeah. so hard? <laughs> yeah. And then it shows yeah. somebody trying to stuff something in a yes. closet and everything falling on them. Because that's what, like, I was showing people. Oh, I can't scan this in. Oh, I need help. I've oh, never it's... had problems. With and it. my only issue is with other shoppers, people who think, because it says self-checkout express, I think Hannaford would clarify if you were only supposed to have a certain number of items. But some people are like, this is supposed to be express and you have too many items. My feeling is it's express because you're doing it yourself and not dealing with a cashier. And the only if there was people... an item limit, it would say there was an item limit. I always use the COVID defense. I don't want to be around people. I'm, right. I'm distancing. Sorry. And then like at the Witten Road, Hannaford, people have it down where there's one line. And the person at the front of the line goes to the next one. Yeah, that, they have But a I've noticed at both at the Coney in Augusta, Hannaford, where our old high school used to be, which is now Hannaford, and in Topsom, for whatever reason, and in Yarmouth, this has happened too, because I've been to like every Hannaford mm, in the yes. state. People seem to not have that concept down as much. And there are times when people think you're waiting in line for specific ones. And it's like, no, you. there's one line. That's what makes it efficient. The person in the front line goes to the next open self-checkout. What's so hard about that? So I anyway, know. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. And, and I do love self-checkout. If it's there for me to use, I use it. Me too. It. I love it. Love it. Love I don't it. understand why I do people not understand. don't like it. Because people are idiots. I think we've established that very well. Mm -hmm. And speaking of which, are you ready to do your Yes, story? I am. So and I don't know if you've heard of this one. Now, I want to preface this by saying 
I don't understand why I, I could not remember this case at all. Ooh. And I do not understand how I could not. The reason I'm doing it is I saw an article while I was researching James Cameron, which was 2008, 2000, you know, 2010, around that time. And I saw a headline that interested me. So I saved that. And I said, I'm going to do that. I don't remember that. And I remember every other, including the two brothers that worked at Dow Furniture. That was like the number two story of the year 2008. These two guys, they were adopted and they didn't know they were brothers and they worked together and everyone that met them said, oh, you guys are so much alike. And then they did it. I remember that one, but I didn't remember this. So I think Mm. it's weird. So we'll see if you remember any of it. Okay, Um, yeah. Because it did make national news and you'll see why. For this story, almost all my information is from the Bangor Daily News. And most of the stories in the Bangor Daily News were written by Walter Griffith. Some Associated Press stories, and I checked all the other main papers in case I missed something. But most of them seem to be getting their information from the Bangor Daily News. So also got a little bit of information from CBS News and Southern Poverty Law Center and the Ukiah Daily Journal from California. Wow. And a huge shout out to the Republican Journal in Belfast, Maine. They were the only ones who got a lot of background information that nobody else did. Hmm. So I got to give them for a little weekly paper. Good for them. Okay. So here's my story. Tuesday, December 9th, 2008, was a cold overcast morning in Belfast, Maine. Amber Cummings, 31, and her nine-year-old daughter, Clara, woke up early and had breakfast together as they did every day. Clara's father, James Cummings, 29, was still asleep upstairs. Amber homeschooled Clara, and their breakfast together was their morning routine. Sometime after breakfast, Amber went to her bedroom. Amber and James slept in separate rooms. Mm. She took the loaded Colt 45 revolver out from under her pillow where she kept it. She put the gun in her mouth and tried to psych herself into pulling the trigger. But she changed her mind. Instead, she went into her husband's bedroom where James was in bed asleep. Amber was still holding her gun. She shot him in the head twice. Later, she said the second shot was to make sure he was dead. Then she went downstairs and told Clara to run. The two fled to a neighbor's house who was never identified in news stories. Clara knocked on the door and she told the woman they needed help. The neighbor let them in and Amber told the neighbor that she, Amber, had shot her husband and killed him. The neighbor called 911. To the newspapers and the public, it seemed like just another domestic murder in Maine. As we have discussed in many episodes, domestic killings are usually at least half of the murders in Maine every year. In fact, James Cummings was shot just an hour before Governor Baldacci was to hold a news conference about how the number of domestic homicides had doubled in Maine in the year 2008. James Cummings' death was the 18th domestic homicide in Maine in 2008. In 2007, there had been eight. As of James' death, the homicide rate for 2008 was 30, which was the most since the all-time high in 1989 of 40. According to the Maine State Police website, there were 31 homicides in 2008. But strangely, James Cummings' death does not appear on the list. At the time, that was a pretty high number, 31. And I looked on the list. It had a list. Maybe they're not done. Re- you know how they're reading right. the list. So the number of homicides was 31. And then it listed names, but there were only 19 names. Oh, so it was weird. weird. But 2022 ended with 29 homicides. Last year was pretty high. 15 of them were domestic. And while every case is different, there is a pattern to domestic violence-related killings. When the killer is a man, he's usually the abuser and he's killing his partner or victim. When the killer is a woman, 
she's usually the victim killing her abuser. Now, I know this is a generalization, but it's based on statistics. So don't come at me. The 911 call came in at 1121 that morning at the Waldo County Communication Center. Belfast police arrived quickly to the scene. They confirmed that there was a dead person in the home and they recovered the gun that killed James. Then the Maine State Police arrived and took over. As we said before, any homicide in Maine, unless in Portland or Bangor, is investigated by the state police. Amber and Clara were both questioned by state police all Tuesday afternoon and were released that evening. No charges were filed against Amber at that time, but she and Clara had to stay in the Belfast area as the investigation continued. The mobile crime lab was parked at the house at 356 High Street for a couple of days and investigators swarmed the scene. Steve McCoslin, the Department of Public Safety spokesman, who's been in many of our episodes, told reporters, we are investigating this death as a domestic violence homicide. Our detectives continue to work with the Belfast police to gather evidence inside the home and conduct interviews. That evidence and the gun used in the shooting will be analyzed at the state police crime lab. We want to gather as much information as we can. Our goal is to determine the circumstances under which the shooting occurred and what went on inside that house Tuesday morning. Duh. Anything (laughs) else? I know. Like that's kind of stating the obvious. Yes. We're going to investigate this crime. Okay. Amber and James Cummings had lived in Belfast a little over a year. They bought their house on High Street in a foreclosure sale. They paid about $154,000 for the house, which was in really bad condition. The city assessed it for $164,000. And for some reason, from the first article I read, when they talk about the house, they say it was trashed, and they have the word trashed in, like, quotation marks. But they don't say who it's a quotation from, and, like, Quite a few articles said that trash, like in quotation marks. And I'm like, it, well, was it was trash when the police went, or it was trash when they it bought was trash it. when they bought it. Yeah, but that like, was because that was during the recession. And I know, but what I'm saying is the right. word trashed was in quotation marks, and I'm like, why is this word in quotation? Did someone can I, say it? Can I? I'll tell you why I think it was in quotation marks because this is my experience with main newspapers is because it's a slang term so they put it in quotation marks to indicate that they're not necessarily attributing to anybody but something people have said some initial reporter used it and then other stories and such just picked it up you know without too much right and right down the street from the cummings house was belfast variety a store that is still in business i think there's two of them now they have a little ranch unit it's almost like a general store in that it has gas pumps and groceries it has a kitchen that sells sandwiches and pizza and stuff and they also have a little hardware section and Hmm. other other necessities there Amber shopped at the store a lot because the Cummings were fixing up their home and they needed various hardware items. And while there were Walmarts and other hardware stores nearby, Belfast Variety was literally like two or three houses from her house. Leslie Holland, who worked at the store, said of Amber, she's so quiet and nice and she's very polite. John DeGraff, who worked in the hardware section, said she is the nicest lady I ever met. They bought a lot of supplies and they put a lot of work into that house. James Cummings did not get such glowing reviews. 
<laughs> Mike Robbins was a contractor who had worked on the Cummings home in the summer of 2008, roofing and painting. Mike told the Bangor Daily News about the shooting. It didn't shock me at all when I heard about it. He was a very angry person and was verbally abusive to his wife all the time. According to Mike Robbins, James Cummings often wore a cowboy hat and a long black leather duster style coat around the house. James would sit in the yard on a lawn chair and watch and critique Mike's work. James bragged to Mike about his large collection of Nazi stuff, including pieces of Adolf Hitler's silverware. Mike said James, quote, really liked Nazis. Jesus. Another contractor who didn't give his name to the news media because of an ongoing lawsuit with James Cummings' estate over unpaid work said that he had tried to collect payment for work done when James Cummings was alive, but he ended up just walking away. The unnamed contractor said, normally I'd go after payment, but in this case, I walked away. He was absolutely the worst customer I ever had. I just perceived that the guy was dangerous and capable of real violence. I was afraid of the guy. He talked all the time about guns. One of those guys that would let you know he had guns. This guy was a huge fan of Adolf Hitler. He had silverware and dinner sets Hitler used. He was verbally abusive to his wife and just about everybody. You've heard of short guys with a Napoleonic complex. Well, this was a fat guy with a Napoleonic <laughs> complex. Despite these two casual observers reporting verbal domestic abuse, Belfast police had no reports from the home, except for one call for what the Mango Daily News reported as an animal complaint. And that's all they put. So I'm like, well, what does that mean? Did somebody complain about one of their pets because they don't seem to have one? Or did they complain? I wanted to know more. Yeah. I need details. But Mike Robbins, the contractor, said that James Cummings ran his mouth about how horrible public schools were. He was constantly bitching at Amber that she had to homeschool Clara. Mike witnessed James exerting constant control over his wife and daughter and having to know their whereabouts and doings at all times. Quote, he was a bad guy and that's just what I saw working for him. I couldn't imagine living with the dude. Mike said that James told him he grew up in California but moved to Texas because he had conflicts with his family. This is partially true and we'll discuss later. James Cummings told Mike Robbins that he had made a lot of money in Texas in real estate. Mike said, I doubted that. He didn't seem to be the kind of guy who could make it in real estate. He was too much of a jerk. <laughs> it is true that while James Cummings was wealthy, it was not due to his own real estate prowess in Texas, but rather that of his father in California. James Cummings Sr. owned a lot of property in Fort Bragg, California in Mendocino County. The senior James owned a fish processing plant, restaurants, malls, and a lot of waterfront properties along the Fort Bragg waterfront. In 1997, James Sr. was shot and killed by one of his part-time employees. Catherine Lee, editor of the weekly Fort Bragg Advocate News, told the Bangor Daily News, It was a real sad turn of events. He was kind of a colorful guy around here. Everybody knew him. And for reference, Fort Bragg is a population of about 7,000, so it's a small town. Brian Anderson a reporter for the Anderson Valley Advertiser, had a different opinion of James Cummings Sr. He told the Bangor Daily News that James Sr. was a gun nut and a violent man. There was an Associated Press story that was published right about the time of James Cummings Sr.'s death. I couldn't find the source story, only what the Bangor Daily News reported about it 10 years later. The BDN said that James Jr. had once secretly videotaped his mother using drugs. She was apparently charged with possession, but after her apartment was searched, the substance they thought was black tar heroin turned out to be something else, not drugs. 
This was a very vague and annoying reference. Was it after his father's death and he was recording her because he wanted her to lose an inheritance? Or was it before his dad's death and James was trying to discredit her for some reason? I don't know. I don't know why they included that story if they weren't going to explain it. But I thought it was interesting. But it's like, well, why was he recording his mother? He was like 18 when his father was killed, by the way. I don't know why they had that in the story. It pissed me off. I went looking on newspapers.com for information on James Sr.'s death and found only one article. Granted, I didn't want to spend too much time looking because it's not the crime we're here to talk about. Still, I wanted to know a few more details. I found a short article in the Ukiah Daily Journal from August 1st, 1997. Alton Vargas, 45, had been arrested on suspicion of murder and held without bail in the shooting death of James Cummings Sr., age 77. James Sr. was a native of Fort Bragg who owned more than 30 Mendocino Coast properties. He also owned a 50-year-old trailer park, which had been the cause of concern in lawsuits right around the time of his death. And I found a lot of articles on that, but I wasn't going to go down that rabbit hole. Basically, the trailers were falling apart and he needed to fix stuff. Also, cops were being called there all the time for various complaints. To a lot of people, he was a typical landowner who enjoyed the money, but only did the bare minimum to keep things going and didn't want to spend too much to keep stuff up. To others, he was generous. He gave high school senior scholarships. He donated property for a stadium and helped with construction costs, etc. When police arrived at James Sr.'s house in Fort Bragg, they found him with severe injuries that resulted in his death. Some kind of explosive device had been set off inside his house and he had been shot. Neighbors called 911 when they heard the explosion, plus what sounded like shots. Alton Vargas lived near James Sr. and worked for him part-time. I wasn't able to find out much about how he was caught, although he supposedly confessed to the killing. Hmm. I have no idea why the guy killed him or anything else. Like I said, I didn't go too far in the weeds with it. However, what I did find out was that when James Sr. died, his assets went into a trust with an annual income reported at about $10 million. It is unclear if James Jr. was the sole recipient or if other family members got money too. I read some reports that said James had sued family members and ended up with a settlement of $2 million. Brian Anderson of the Anderson Valley Advertiser had written about the Cummings family for years. He said that James Jr. was obsessed with his legal battles with the trustees of his father's estate. Quote, he just grew up kind of a sad, isolated guy. He always struck me as a sort of lonely guy. When I heard he was shot and killed by his wife, I wasn't surprised. <laughs> I wasn't surprised to hear about his ideological interests either. There is some conflicting information about the trust fund and James' inheritance. However, the upshot is that James had a source of income. I do not believe he worked while he was in Maine, and Amber did not as well, with the exception of being a mother and a teacher to her daughter. This leads me to believe that James was home all the time with his wife and daughter, all the better to keep an eye on them and make sure he had total control. Ugh. In February of 2009, some news broke about the James Cummings shootings via WikiLeaks. Ooh. The Washington, D.C. Regional Threat and Analysis Center wrote a field report that WikiLeaks obtained and posted online. Here's an excerpt from the report. On 9 December 2008, radiological dispersal device components and literature and radioactive materials were discovered at the main residence of an identified deceased person, James Cummings. There was a bunch of stuff I know nothing about, never having taken chemistry, so all you smart people don't judge me. There were four gallons of 35% hydrogen peroxide, along with quantities of uranium, 
thorium, lithium metal, thermite, aluminum powder, beryllium boron, black iron oxide, and magnesium ribbon found in the Cummings house. These ingredients were likely to make a dirty bomb and, quote, lithium metal, thermite, and aluminum are materials used to sensitize and amplify the effects of explosives, end quote. The uranium was bought online from a U.S.-based company that was not identified in the report, but apparently the FBI knew who it was and it was purchased legally. The FBI also found information in the home on how to make dirty bombs. A dirty bomb is a regular bomb in the way it explodes. It's not a nuclear bomb or anything like that. But the bomb maker adds radioactive material to it, so when the bomb explodes... It will disperse radioactive stuff all over the place. That's my scientific explanation. That's very good. You sound very smart. There was evidence that connected James to white supremacist groups. No surprise. They also found an application to become a member of the National Socialist Movement, otherwise known as Nazis, that James had filled out. When Amber was questioned, she told police that James had often talked about dirty bombs and he was always mixing chemicals up in the kitchen sink, which is wonderful. On the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's website, it states, most RDDs, RDD means radiological dispersal device or dirty bomb, would not release enough radiation to kill people or cause severe illness. Okay, but still, it's fucking radiation being dispersed. I I know. know. It doesn't sound good. Amber also said that James was livid when Barack Obama was elected president. Remember, this was was. December of 2008 that she shot him. The FBI would not comment on the report. Remember, it was WikiLeaks that posted it. They wouldn't say if it was real or make any comment about the case. John Donnelly, out of the FBI's Boston office, said, I wouldn't be prepared to speak on that. I have no comment. Yeah, he was one of the jerks. Yeah, whitey whitey. bulger guy. I know. Lieutenant Gary Wright, head of the Maine State Police Criminal Investigation Division, told the Bangor Daily News, we're not going to comment on anything. It's an open homicide investigation, and we're not going to comment. That's our policy. Steve McCoslin, spokesman for Maine Department of Public Safety, said, this is an active open homicide investigation, and as a result, it's inappropriate to get into confirming or denying the aspects of that. William Stokes, Maine Attorney General, wouldn't comment. Also, he was running for, or he had run for governor. The Bangor Daily News sent a copy of the FBI report to Governor John Baldacci's office for comment. The governor's spokesperson, David Farmer, said, At this point, I have been unable to confirm the authenticity of the documents you sent to us. And he said it would be inappropriate for the governor to make any comment anyway. No one else would comment. Not Susan Collins or the Department of Homeland Security. Bangor Daily News seem to call everybody. I know. And they all were like, oh, and, no and for people who don't know, Susan Collins is a U.S. She's, senator. She's our Maine. senior senator. Yeah. Despite no one telling them anything or not commenting on the leaked FBI reports, neighbors of the Cummings had their suspicions for months. Former Mayor of Belfast, Michael Hurley, lived on High Street just down the street from the Cummings house. He told the BDN, if I say BDN, that's Bangor Daily News, just so you know. The search went on for days. It was clear that it was an abnormal length of time to search a house that somebody just got shot in. There were a lot of guys in a lot of special vehicles coming and going. You don't know who they are. Mm. Valerie Fargo, who worked at Belfast Variety, had heard rumors from customers the day after the shooting that radioactive material had been in the house. She said, 
When I heard he had that stuff in there, I was ready to run. That is quite scary. I do not want to come back to work. It was scary knowing that stuff was that close. When asked about the danger to the community, Belfast Police Chief Jeffrey Trafton said, there was no danger to the community. We established that very quickly. He said, as soon as the police realized there were chemicals in the home, they called a hazmat team to remove them. The team said the radioactive stuff was contained. Quote, the stuff Cummings had in its present form wasn't a danger to the community. The technicians told me you would have to get real close to it for a long time to be exposed to radiation. And that was Jeffrey Trafton, again, mm. chief of police. Maine Public Safety Commissioner Ann Jordan released a statement the day after the WikiLeaks release confirming that hazardous chemicals and radioactive material had been removed from the House back in December. Her statement read in part, a hazardous materials team from the Maine Department of Environmental Protection was called to the home the night of the homicide to remove a number of items from inside the home. An assessment that night by members of the HAZMAT team indicated the home was safe for state police detectives to enter and conduct their investigation after the materials had been removed. In addition, detectives felt it was appropriate the FBI be contacted. I've been told by federal officials that the items seized could be purchased legally and there was not sufficient quantity or quality to pose an immediate threat or hazard to the health and safety of the public. Maybe so, but how do they know he wasn't in the process of amassing materials? Those items were on the search warrant executed that day, all that radioactive shit. Mm. And so that was back in December. But that warrant, along with the autopsy report and other items pertaining to the investigation, had been impounded so they weren't reported to the news media. So the news media might have known something about the radioactive from neighbors and stuff, but they couldn't right. really report on it. I bet when they saw that WikiLeaks thing, they were like, ah. Yeah, no shit. Now we can do it. And the aftermath of September 11th, 2001, which I'm sure you all remember, the Twin Towers were mm -hmm. hit by planes. Yeah. All main hospitals were provided with equipment to help in dealing with disasters. Not just natural events, but hostile attacks and bombings or whatever. The BDN asked Gary Haslin, Director of Support Services and Emergency Planning at Waldo Hospital, what measures were in place in case of radiation exposure. He said, the treatment depends on the agent. We have 18 employees to handle decontamination on site. So for instance, they had tents that could be set up outside and special suits and showers to get rid of the radiation. Travis Benjamin, who is the son of the owner of Belfast Variety, said he wasn't too concerned about hazardous materials. He figured the police had been on top of that since <laughs> the beginning. Of Amber Cummings, Travis said, she was in and out all the time and seemed like a real nice lady. She's always been nice and she is an awesome kid. I never knew the guy and never saw the guy. I guess he kind of kept to himself. And I just want to say, too, the people who downplay all those bomb-making materials, just the fact that normal citizen on your street has that shit is a danger. I mean, it's not like he's some kind of scientist who would have it for a reason. You know, You'll so obviously see. he's a danger. But also, they wouldn't have even known about it if right. he had been killed. Exactly. The Cummings' next-door neighbor, Charlie Parker, who wasn't the jazz guy, by the way, oh. I don't think, was one of the few people who knew both the husband and wife and had positive things to say about James. He had built a retaining wall for James the year before the murder. He often stopped to say hi when he was walking by and saw James in the yard. He never saw the couple fight, he oh, said. Of course and not. now, just to cut in here to say... 
The other two guys who worked at the house did not say that the couple fought. They said James was abusive to his wife. There is a difference. And I challenge some people to recognize when somebody's being verbally or emotionally abusive. Well, listen, this he said more. You'll have an opinion of him after this. Charlie said... I saw the bomb squad go in, but I wasn't worried. He always seemed nice to me. He never talked about any bombs, but he did show me some pistols he had, Nazi memorabilia, a Nazi dagger. I thought those things were cool. Hmm. But I'm no Nazi by any stretch of the imagination. He told me he was a Nazi. Oh, so he's a super nice guy. Oh, yeah, he's a Nazi. Right. I'm sure there were good people (laughs) in the Nazis. Yeah, on both sides. Of the leaked report, an unidentified spokeswoman for the Washington Regional Threat and Analysis Center said that although the leaked report was accurate, it wasn't a big deal. Mm. She said, that's a document that was pulled a month ago when the investigation was still ongoing. We've since determined that there's nothing to it. There were 60 regional threat centers in the U.S. back then, also called fusion centers. I think there may be even more now. So they're still around. I looked it up. And they're still needed. The unnamed spokeswoman explained, essentially, they were created to bring law enforcement officials and the private sector together to share information and prevent terrorist attacks. Maine has a fusion center, but the reason that the FBI report that the WikiLeaks leak had information from a fusion center in Washington, D.C. and not Maine about James Cummings was because they were worried that he was going to disrupt the presidential inauguration. I have a feeling that there was more to the story than that one report. And I don't think they automatically jumped to that conclusion. Either James said something, maybe he was online. You know, it wasn't the same as it is now, but they were still looking at stuff online. There was something that led them to look at him as a threat. And that's how they had that in the report. Later, it was reported that the FBI report was part of an investigation into threats to Obama and a danger of disruption of the inauguration. A relative of Amber's from California, who wouldn't be named because of fear of reprisals from nutcases, said that Amber had told her that James was planning on setting off a bomb at the inauguration. I think Amber told her that after James was dead. Amber wasn't, you'll find out later, she wasn't really talking to her relatives. He had isolated her from them. And you'll find out more about that later. Okay. His plan was to take out the president and his family, the relatives said. And by his family, it means James' family, not the president's family. Although I'm sure if he had could have taken out the president and Michelle and the two girls, he would have been. The spokeswoman said the information that was leaked was for public safety officials, not for the public. And the fact is, it was put out before the investigation was completed. She also said the threat center's belief that James Cummings was just a lone, mentally ill individual, not part of a terrorist network. Hmm. But I feel like it isn't necessarily one or the other. There doesn't have to be an organized network in place for someone like him to be goaded and encouraged into acting by other like-minded people. Just look at Timothy McVeigh. And interestingly enough, there was a story in the Boston Globe today about how this one neo-Nazi group in New England and see something... 131 has formed, and one of the guys started it when he quit the Marines in 2008 because he didn't want to be commanded by Barack Obama. And that's when he began to start his Nazi group. So this stuff was forming back then and going on. And I don't know if these law enforcement agencies really 
think it's always either a lone nut or an organized group, or if they just say things like this to placate the public. But on January 6, 2021, I think we saw a lot of, quote, lone individuals yes. get together to form a mob. So that kind of statement doesn't really make me feel safer. As we go through the story, you're going to see a lot of things that, in hindsight, what this spokeswoman doesn't say And what I was thinking is that the investigation was wrapped up and there was no danger because the guy who was going to do it was dead. And that's the only reason. Right. And that's the only reason they caught him. And luckily things weren't the way they are today with the internet. So James apparently didn't have a chance to hook up with a lot of other guys like himself. Or if he did, they either didn't investigate it or they didn't share their findings. James Cummings did have a MySpace page, as I did in 2008. I was going to go on the Wayback Machine or something to see if I could find it. It's probably still floating around there. His MySpace page reportedly showed pictures and videos of nuclear blasts, Mm. human skulls, the Grim Reaper, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin were listed as some of his favorite musicians. The BDN asked a couple University of Maine professors how hard it is to get materials to make a dirty bomb. The professor said an everyday person can get most of the materials, but the amounts needed for a bomb would be high enough to catch the eye of most law enforcement agencies. Physics professor C. Thomas Hess said, if you have a University of Maine invoice, I suppose it's very easy to get chemicals, but most materials, particularly anything that is made by some sort of chemical reaction such as uranium, is strictly regulated. Both professors agreed regulations had tightened significantly since September 11, 2001. Professor Hess said, I remember kids used to get stuff for science fair projects that I don't think you could get now. He also didn't think anyone was in danger. He said, I don't think the guy knew what he was doing. And perhaps, but I would take that to mean you could still be in danger. Dangerous chemicals and they don't know what they're doing. And I wouldn't take that for granted either that he didn't know. know what he was doing. Chemical and biological engineering professor Paul Millard said he was surprised by what was found in James Cummings' home. Quote, but it really depends on the amounts he was amassing and that hasn't been clear. You can potentially contaminate an environment with materials that are not necessarily illegal. Matt Crosby, a Belfast resident, told a reporter he was a bit uneasy when he heard about the bomb-making materials. He said, I was thinking, evidently, that this woman did us a favor. Obviously, he had bigger plans. When contacted by the Bangor Daily News, Commander Jeff Shute of the National Associate Movement, a.k.a. Nazis, the U.S. version, wrote an email that said the group does not, quote, endorse any acts of violence or terrorism, end quote. He said the organization is, quote, a white civil rights movement, end quote. Give me a fucking break. According to Jeff Shoup, the Nazis used political activism and legal protests to spread its message. Mm. Quote, acts of violence or terrorism against America or its citizens is unacceptable and not tolerated within the ranks of the National Socialist Movement. You know. Yeah, you know, and it's funny you say that because in that story in the Boston Globe today, somebody was making that argument about that NC whatever 131 and somebody else made the thing, well, if you're just a political activist group, you don't walk around with brass knuckles and guns and stuff to make bombs. A couple days after the story about the dirty bomb stuff broke, 
Amber Cummings was indicted for murder by a grand jury on Thursday, February 12th, 2009. The news was made public Friday, February 13th, after Amber turned herself in. When Amber was questioned by police, she told them that she had endured years of abuse by her husband, physical, sexual, and mental. On Tuesday, February 17th, Amber appeared in court and entered a plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease. By main law, if you think you might use the insanity defense, you have to enter an insanity plea at the arraignment or you won't be able to plead insanity later. So if you think you might want to use the insanity defense, you need to enter the plea first and you can change it later. I don't know why it's like this to bad Matt isn't here. Amber's attorney of record, Rick Morse, was on vacation, so Amber was represented by Joseph Bayango, who entered the plea. As he entered the plea, Joseph told the court Amber was not incompetent now, only at the time of the crime. Judge Patricia Worth ordered Amber to be held without bail pending her bail hearing. Assistant Attorney General Leanne Zania said that the bail hearing had to be held within five days. Superior Court Joseph Jeff Jeffrey Helm would be presiding over the bail hearing. Joseph Biongo told reporters, we're ready for a bail hearing as soon as the court can do it. During the bail hearing, the state has to establish probable cause that a felony was committed. Amber had been free for the past two months until her indictment. In the courtroom, the day of her indictment, a middle-aged couple sat watching the proceedings. A reporter asked them if they were from California and if they were there for Amber. They ignored the question. When Amber left the courthouse, the woman waved and called, we love you, Amber. And I don't think that they were actually her relatives. We'll talk about it later. She had been working at a bookstore and there was a couple that owned the bookstore. And I think that's who they were. A week after she turned herself into police, Amber Cummings was released on bail. The bail was $50,000 cash. Around this time, there was an interesting guest editorial in the Bangor Daily News by James Chassie in St. Agatha. He was basically reminding people that the enemy may very well not be from another country, but from our own. He said, look at James Cummings. No one, including Homeland Security, seemed to know what he was up to until he was killed. I won't read the whole thing, but this part was interesting. I think now, after the last few years we've had. There are, unfortunately, many more Mr. Cummingses being nurtured and being bred in the quiet suburbs and countryside of America. We would be wise to be aware of this fact. Also, we as a people should tune out the hate and divisive rhetoric that is being incessantly broadcast on our TV screens and radio stations 24-7. This hateful speech does not bode well for a healthy United States, end quote. And I wonder if he is still alive 14 years later and if he's saying, I told you so. In March 2009, an affidavit was released during court proceedings that revealed not only did James Cummings have dirty bomb materials in his home, he also had child pornography on his computer. There were at least 45 videos and over 700 photographs stored on the hard drive. The affidavit said there was evidence of the intentional or knowing manufacture, possession, or dissemination of sexually explicit materials. The images were described as young children exposing their genitals or engaged in sexual acts. The search warrants and affidavits had come out because the 90-day impoundment deadline had passed. If you remember, I said the autopsy and warrant and other documents were impounded. That's why no one knew about any of the child porn or anything until March. The other information that came out was the weapon that killed James Cummings was a Colt 45 Peacemaker. And every time I read Peacemaker, because every article called it a Peacemaker, 
which is pretty much every article. It reminded me of the Steve Rowe song, The Devil's Right Hand, where he says, and then I went and got myself a Colt 45, called the peacemaker, but I never knew why. Anyway, the affidavit contained information about Amber's statements to police and detailed the police search of the home. She told them that she shot her husband twice in the head as he slept. When police got to the house that December morning, they found the gun Amber used to shoot James on the bedroom floor. James was in bed with the covers pulled up to his chin. James had a visible bullet wound to the head. There was a pillow nearby with gunshot residue, so she might have used it like to silence it or something. Assistant Attorney General Leanne Zania was the one who asked the documents be impounded in the beginning because it was, quote, detrimental to the ongoing investigation. There are items seized that are sensitive in nature and should not be disclosed to the public at this time, end quote. And I think that it hurt her case to say that he had child porn. And of course, he was a fucking terrorist. That would give too much sympathy to Amber. And of course, being the prosecution, she doesn't want the, you know, whatever. Of course, the information was shared with the FBI, which is how it eventually got out through WikiLeaks. Amber didn't talk to police when they first arrested her. I think it took him a couple hours. I'm not sure. Uh, Eventually, she told him what happened. Clara told the police that she heard gunshots, and then her mother came downstairs and said they had to run. They went next door, and the neighbor called 911. Amber told police that once James had punched her and given her a black eye. She had taken a photo of the injury, but later deleted it. James had also taken a photo of the black eye, and he had apparently saved it. And I don't know why that's mentioned. I think it's because it was in the affidavit when they were interviewing her, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he beat her a lot more than once. Oh, yeah, me too. She told police about James' Nazi views. And of course, no one could miss the giant swastika on the wall as they walked into the house. The affidavit said James had neo-Nazi extremist views and frequently had her log into different websites and chat rooms to further his beliefs, which I assume means she would have to post stupid crap on Twitter and Reddit and Discord or whatever, and probably bolster whatever he was posting like as a second. He also went into chat rooms and sites seeking women to join their sexual relationship. Uh. And of course, he was searching the internet for, quote, certain chemical information. Amber told police that James had a safe full of chemicals. When police searched, besides finding the instructions on how to make a dirty bomb, they found other papers with, quote, terrorist hate content. There were about half a dozen loaded handguns, a loaded 12-gauge shotgun, and boxes of shells and ammunition throughout the house. Near the end of March 2009, Amber Cummings changed her plea from not guilty by reason of insanity to not guilty. It was expected that Amber would go on trial in the fall of 2009. In the meantime, she'd been out on bail since February. I was curious to know, and they don't explain it, but later they kind of explain it. But I was wondering if she was living in the same house and if she got any of her husband's income from his trust. Her daughter must have gotten something. Yeah. I'm not judging. I was just curious. And the newspaper reports never mention it, which is like, why? I want to know. Other people probably want to know, too. I know. 
In July, it was reported that Amber would probably be using battered wife syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder as a defense strategy. This information came out at a hearing related to the results of the defense's expert witnesses who conducted psychological tests on Amber. The state testified that they also wanted their experts to examine Amber. Amber's lawyer, Eric Morse, objected to the state doing its tests because Amber would be, quote, forced to relive the event. But Justice Helm ruled in the prosecution's favor. But it didn't matter in the end. In November 2009, Amber Cummings pleaded guilty to domestic violence and manslaughter in a plea agreement that would have her spend one year in prison at the most. Mm. But remember, she hadn't been sentenced yet. Just so. Right. Um, on November 13th, Amber entered her plea before Justice Helm and Waldo County Superior Court. The agreement was eight years in prison with all but one year suspended and six years of probation. The one year was a maximum cap when Amber was sentenced. She would have the opportunity to argue for probation only. Eric Moore said, we are obviously going to be, <laughs> every time someone says obvious, I know. we are obviously going to be asking for no incarceration. We are pleased. We will have an opportunity to argue for the probation. And under the circumstances, we think that is appropriate because incarceration would only lead to her further decompensation and breakdown. More information came out at this hearing. When Amber was initially questioned, she told police that James had threatened to kill himself, her, and their daughter, Clara, during an attack on Washington, D.C. during the inauguration. James said he was bringing the whole family, and they would all die together along with anyone else the bomb would take out. Amber and Clara had been getting a lot of psychiatric help since the shooting, and Amber had been taking anti-anxiety medications. When James was shot, he had a loaded gun under his pillow and a loaded gun on his bedside table. Both Amber and James, who, as I said, slept in separate rooms, kept loaded guns by their beds and or under their pillows. I think that'd be uncomfortable. I know. After the attorney general's office got their own results from Amber's psychiatric test, they agreed to a plea agreement. Andrew Wish, the state psychiatrist, said he found real legitimate concerns that Amber was suffering from PTSD and battered woman syndrome. Eric Moore said he validated what she had been saying all along. He, meaning James, had been abusing her for years. From the very beginning, she had explained to police that she had been abused and was basically defending herself and her daughter. Attorney General William Stokes told newspapers of the plea agreement, this is a recognition that we had an extraordinarily abusive and dysfunctional relationship, which justifies our willingness to accept the lesser charge of manslaughter. On the editorial page of the Tuesday, November 17th issue of the Bangor Daily News, they had a feature called Clickback. Now, I think back then, which you would know more than me, but I think this was the papers trying to get into the internet thing. They had all these, oh, click on this, you know, whatever. They don't really have stuff like this anymore. Now it's more of a feature was asking readers to submit online responses to questions about recent news stories. They had the headline, is the spousal abuse defense being abused? And then it says, Amber Cummings, the Belfast woman who police say shot and killed her husband last year, will serve one year in prison as the result of a plea agreement. The dead man, who is sympathetic to Adolf Hitler and had plans to build a dirty bomb, he wanted to, this very poorly written, and had plans to build a dirty bomb he wanted to explode at President Barack Obama's inauguration, sexually, physically, and emotionally abused his wife. Is this a double standard? Would a man fare as well in the justice system if the roles were reversed? Or is this a case in which Ms. Cummings was defending her life and that of her daughter? 
Jesus when Christ. I first read this, I was kind of annoyed, but I realized they are trying to be provocative to get people to respond. I think asking if it's a double standard is creating a false equivalency. It's pretending that everything is equal in these types of crimes, which of course we know it isn't, as I mentioned before. Right. Just because of the power dynamic between men and women, the roles couldn't be reversed. And name one thing where the woman is a Nazi sympathizer <laughs> who's building dirty bombs and abusing the husband. I know. And, and with child porn. Coerces, coercive control. And- uh, that's what I, my, I said. So let me think. If there's a wife who's a Nazi, abused her husband, collected child pornography, and was building a smart bomb, would her husband get off as easily if he killed her? I'd say yes. Yeah. He would he probably wouldn't even be charged. Exactly. Also, just asking if the spousal abuse defense is being abused is a shitty question. There is no such thing years ago, and abusive men get passes way too much. What about domestic abusers who kill their wives? Here are some of the responses. Oh, no. You know how I love to read this. Yeah, I know. So maniac, and it's M, it's lowercase M, capital A, I, N, I, capital A, C. That was their name. Said... Is this about Amber Cummings of Belfast protecting herself or is it about protecting the country? Did she accept the abuse until her husband was actively building a dirty bomb? I agree the spousal abuse argument is used too often. There are too many ways of getting out of an abusive situation, so it should not be a reason for complete leniency. Julie H777 said, Let's say this particular woman reported her husband to police. He is arrested, charged, out on bail within 24 hours, and has a restraining order in place to prevent contact with the woman. Do you really think this man is going to abide by a restraining order? Or is he going to be so full of rage at his wife that he goes after her and or her family? Yeah, truly. I don't doubt that woman believes she had no other way to protect herself or her family than to act as she did. A restraining order is worthless. Larry S.G. said, Spousal abuse is a lot more pervasive than most people realize. Many of the abused feel it's their fault or may be embarrassed to press charges. It would not be unusual for the abuse to go on for a number of years before anything is done. Sometimes it's manslaughter, more often not. If recent cases, the past two years, are any example, then the killing is justified. And then this Fausto said... If a wife can kill her husband because he's an abusive right-wing racist, can Glenn Beck ever go to sleep again in his own home in complete safety? Amber Cummings could be starting a trend that leaves some Republican opinion makers at risk. (laughs) (laughs) And also, there would not be a spousal defense abuse option if it wasn't a thing. So asking if it's overused isn't a valid question. It's up to the judge and or jury to decide if it's a credible defense in each case. Do you ask, oh, is is a not guilty defense? Also, and I know, like you said, they were asking the question to be provocative, but maybe the question should be, why is this so often a defense and what are we doing about spousal abuse? Exactly. And everyone is ignoring the child porn aspect. I think it was odd, though, how that was downplayed. Yeah. The child pornography aspect. When he had a nine-year-old daughter. We'll talk about it later, but the only... There's so much to talk about later. The CBS News thing I saw, the headline of it, and it was like a clickbaity thing. She killed him to save her daughter. And that comes up a little bit later, one of the experts. But otherwise, they were so focused on the dirty bomb shit. There were also letters to the editor. So here's my dramatic reading of a few, the short ones. From the Bangor Daily News on November 19, 20 and 21, 2009. 
Time served. Amber Cummings, the woman sentenced for killing her husband in Belfast, has already served her time. Ten years of spousal abuse. She took a potential terrorist out of circulation single-handedly. Set her free to raise her daughter, wish her luck, and give her a medal for valor. Jeffrey Metz Addison. Cummings saved lives. After following the story of Amber Cummings, the woman who shot her husband in Belfast, it is my belief that we owe her a debt of gratitude. It is impossible for anyone to know how many lives she may have saved. I wish her and her daughter the best, and God bless them both. Irving Spencer and Bangor. Get away with murder? I'm writing in regard to the woman, Amber Cummings of Belfast, who has pleaded guilty to killing her husband while he slept by shooting him twice in the head with a 45 caliber handgun. She has struck a deal not to serve more than one year in prison. This just blows me away due to the fact that I just got done serving four years in prison for driving without a license. It was my sixth offense. But regardless, (laughs) what's worse, murder or driving offenses? If you ask me, the court system is putting the wrong people in prison. And people wonder why the prison system is so overcrowded. Jeffrey Frost from Pittsfield. Somebody who has six driving convictions is at least one death just waiting to happen out there and he's playing fast and loose with the facts because he had other stuff on his record besides the fact that he had no license many people who are driving without a license don't have one because it was revoked no shit you don't get four years for that i was curious and did a quick search there was enough that could have been him that's like buddy you're not in prison for four years just because you didn't have your license right it's apples and oranges anyway i know it's Uh, just stupid i know also like if he thinks prisons are overcrowded why is he complaining about her not serving time oh shit for the most part public opinion was on amber's side she was married to a horrible horrible man so there really wasn't anyone willing to criticize her too harshly yes she took a life but she had a better reason than a lot of domestic murders I mean, the men that do it didn't have right on January 7th, 2010, Amber Cummings went before Judge Helm to be sentenced. The hearing was in Waldo County Superior Court in Belfast. Three therapists were set to testify about Amber's state of mind and mental health, as well as the mental condition of Clara, her daughter. According to Eric Morse, Amber's attorney, not only did James physically abuse his wife and daughter, beating both of them, but he isolated them from other family members and the public. He brainwashed his wife and instilled in Clara his racist, paranoid, and hateful beliefs. Eric Moore said, they, meaning the therapist, will emphasize that any jail time would not only have a traumatic effect on Amber, but also her daughter. Each of them have endured years of trauma and abuse, and any separation of the mother and daughter in light of what they went through would only add to that. Both have endured a decade of abuse. And the year plus since James' death, Amber and Clara had made a lot of progress through therapy. Clara was attending public school and Amber had a part-time job. Clark Canfield wrote in an Associated Press article, defense lawyer Eric Morse graphically described how James Cummings lived in a sadistic world of darkness and hate, where he ridiculed, abused, and debased his wife during their decade-long marriage. Eric Morse told the court his, meaning James, hostility toward her and the world was increasing. James Cummings, in my mind, truly personified evil. Mm. One of the psychologists who testified said the straw that broke the camel's back was James Cummings' growing obsession with child pornography. I found it interesting that it took this long 
for this to come up. Everyone was focusing on the fact he wanted to blow everyone up at the inauguration. You know, he could have succeeded or he could have not, but the child porn thing was hardly mentioned. And to me, that was a more eminent danger to Clara. The fact that he was obsessed with child porn and he had this little girl in his house. According to the psychologist, James often talked to Amber about how he was sexually attracted to young girls and Amber was aware of his fixation on child pornography. She thought it was just a matter of time before he turned his attention to their young daughter. AAG Lianzania recommended a year in jail. Her thinking behind this recommendation was that even though there was no doubt that Amber Cummings had suffered severe abuse, a message needed to be sent that, quote, this kind of self-help is severely antisocial behavior and that it will be punished accordingly. I think this is bullshit. A suspended sentence is still a punishment. What possible good could it be to put Amber in jail and separate her from her daughter? Yes. After all they've been through. Right. Yeah. If they were worried about an epidemic of women killing their abusive husbands, they can crack down on the things that cause domestic no. abuse Shit. and start going after men for doing it and also yeah. crack down on people having loaded guns in their house. I know. Amber herself did not testify at the sentencing hearing, but Judge Helm heard enough. When he handed down the sentence, he said he looked at all the factors and not just the moment in which Amber pulled the trigger. The final plea agreement was no jail time, eight years suspended, six years probation. And there were requirements that she had to hold up to stay out of jail. Conditions of her probation required she stay in Maine and continue therapy. Judge Helms said, she will now stand as a convicted criminal. This is not a get out of jail free card. The real sentence is eight years. Justice Helms said, James Cummings built two prisons, one in which he lived, the other in which he put the defendant. Mm. The judge said people who thought that James Cummings' death was a simple matter of Amber walking into his bedroom and shooting him weren't understanding the big picture. Judge Helms said the abuse and James constantly reminding Amber how he was going to kill her left her to believe she had no other way out. Quote, she was unable to recognize the path to freedom. My view is that she reached a point where she did not feel she had choices. And I thought it was refreshing to hear somebody say that and understand that a judge. The judge commended the, quote, extraordinarily thorough psychiatric evaluation by Dr. Andrew Wish. And Dr. Wish was the state's psychiatrist. Mm. Dr. Wish reported that Amber was tortured by James for his sadistic self-gratification. James apparently convinced Amber that he had supernatural powers and he would be able to get to her even after he was dead. During her therapy, Amber told her counselors that James believed white men ruled the world and women were subservient to men. The front hall of their home had a giant swastika flag on the wall, so anyone walking in would see it for his thing. In James' bedroom was a huge collection of what the Bangor Daily News said was pornographic films depicting anal sex, oh. which they all do. I thought. And then, of course, we have already discussed the child pornography on his computer. The expert who evaluated Amber Cummings found that she had a shared psychotic disorder. This happens when one mentally ill person is a dominant personality and that person's psychosis and beliefs are adopted by the other person. Eric Moore said that when he first met Amber five hours after the shooting, she was a strange individual. She was like a caged animal that had been released. 
We all struggled to get her to open up. As I said, Amber didn't testify at the hearing. She sobbed through much of it. And reportedly, there were sobs from the gallery as well, supporters of Amber, that is. No one was crying for James. Amber did submit a five-page letter to the court. I don't think it was read in court, but that wasn't clear in the reporting. I think they were just quoting the letter that they were given. It was submitted to the court and then maybe reporters were given copies. She didn't read it and nobody else read it that I know of. In the letter, a remorseful Amber said that she was thankful to the prosecutor for defending my husband's life. For many years, I alone have defended my husband's actions, but my loyalty and love did not save his soul. I will carry the burden of failure through the rest of my days. She said that she was terribly sad that James' legacy would be that of a terrorist that planned to murder on a mass scale and a man that had a terrible sexual desire to make women and children suffer. Amber was haunted by the memory of James. He reaches out from beyond the grave all the time to this day. Amber said that when Clara, her daughter, was two, Amber became pregnant. James forced Amber to have an abortion because he believed the child would have been born to do something bad to him. According to Amber, James said he would cut the child from my womb himself if she did not end the pregnancy. James told Amber that he had killed three people and with the proper training, Clara could become a serial killer just like him. Amber and Clara were unusually close and, quote, clung to each other for survival. We still cling to each other for survival, end quote. Clara had been thoroughly indoctrinated into her father's fucked up belief system. As I said, James forced Amber to homeschool their daughter. Clara was not allowed to go to a doctor or play with other kids. Amber wrote that after James' death, Clara said, Mom, please promise that you still care about killing all the blacks. If dad is not here to build the bomb, I will have to do it when I grow up. I know. Amber wrote, I have been faced with my baby's death or the threat of it so many times that I have lost all desire to live. I am not like normal people anymore. I don't desire anything, and not a day goes by that I won't suffer for taking the life of a man I loved that resulted in saving the life of the child that I loved. As Amber left the courtroom, about 50 observers wearing stickers and t-shirts that said free Amber applauded. Outside the courthouse, Amber thanked all her supporters. She said she didn't want people to be angry with James. He was mentally ill. Amber told the crowd, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be a long way to recovery, and I will not give up on it given the community we have because they all love us. As for Clara, she'll do fine. She'll be a good girl. In the same issue that reported the sentencing hearing, the Bangor Daily News had the feature called You Relogged On that had more (laughs) You Clicked It responses. (laughs) Under the headline You Said It were the following comments. XLAX94 said, I know some will disagree with this, but this was the right decision by the judge in this matter. No woman should have lived as this woman did. May she find happiness in the future. But Irish Proud said, there is no excuse for murder ever. She had family out of state, a very bored police department and brains. She could have gotten herself out of this mess. The lesson here, if you want to kill someone, just come to Waldo County. Skateboarders, pot smokers, and drunks, on the other hand, will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. What? Fucking stupid. 
The poll question of the day asked, do you think Amber Cummings should have received jail time for killing her husband? The next day's paper had the survey results. No, 81% and yes, 19%. People also miss the point that once you're convicted of murder, whether you go to prison or not, you have a felony murder conviction on your record for the yes. rest of your life. It's very difficult to get jobs, to get housing. You're kind of trapped in this. Well, it's like the judge said, it's a sentence of eight right. years. It's, a, it's actually a lifetime sentence. Yeah. It causes you problems for the rest of your life. Shortly after the sentencing, the Bangor Daily News did a feature story about Amber Cummings and what was going on with her life over a year after she shot and killed James Cummings. Amber was living in an apartment with Clara. She told reporter Abigail Curtis, the people around here are pretty incredible. They gave me the benefit of the doubt and a chance to prove myself. There was a lot of support, an unbelievable amount of support in Belfast. People came out and took care of us and made sure we had everything we need. Her husband was diagnosed posthumously with paranoid schizophrenia. This may be so, but he's also an asshole. There are a lot of people who have schizophrenia that aren't bigoted pieces of shit. I'm just saying. And I also think a lot of that shit, like making her abort the baby, was more coercive control than him uh, yes, being crazy. Yes, because yes. coercive controllers use tactics like that and bullshit to manipulate exactly. people. Since he was dead... And wasn't there to be examined psychiatrically. They're relying on what they were told, other people's perceptions, mostly exactly. Amber's, yeah. of what he said and did. So mm -hmm. I would wonder if today. Yeah, I know. I thought it was. I, it would be I, the I, same. Hard to diagnose someone. That. Right. Amber was diagnosed with shared psychotic disorder. We've done a couple episodes that featured this disorder, uh, the modern version of it, because as I'll tell you in a minute, it's not a considered a disorder anymore by the DSM. The Turpin family, the parents of that for one. Elizabeth Hasem and Jan Soaring have been used as an example. What was the name of that? Uh, yeah, I can't remember. I remember. But, um, but I don't, our... I, I think that, I don't think they are because I don't think he didn't take part in the crime with her. Right. I don't think For that some reason, I want to say that was episode 88, but you've Ooh, caught maybe. me off guard. So. Um, also, the couple that we didn't do an episode on, but the couple who kidnapped Elizabeth Smart in Utah were cited as an example of shared psychotic disorder uh dsm-5 otherwise known as the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders removed the diagnosis of shared psychotic disorder in 2013 so this was in 2008 or 9 when amber was diagnosed with it it's not like the american psychiatric association is saying that the condition doesn't exist in dsm-5 it said quote in the context of a relationship the delusional material from the dominant partner provides content for delusional belief by the individual who may not otherwise entirely meet criteria for delusional disorder end quote which describes most of the other examples, the dominant partner has the delusions and is mentally ill. The non-dominant partner is vulnerable and adopts the delusions and beliefs either as a coping mechanism or just because they are, like of a better word, brainwashed and they're right. vulnerable. They break them down with coercive control. Yes, exactly. Belfast Police Chief Jeff Trafton told the BDN, it was a difficult case for the police. Aww. On the face, you have someone shot by another person. But when you look at all the extenuating circumstances, it's not hard for me to believe that she thought her life and her daughter's life were in danger. I think first and foremost, he was a danger to her and her daughter. They were the ones in the house with him. 
I don't think any jury in Waldo County would have convicted her. Rebecca here, I agree. I think the choice to do a plea agreement, first of all, was Amber's idea because she felt guilty for killing him. But I think she would have been acquitted probably. But I think it's interesting and a little refreshing for the whole issue to not be, she shot the guy while he was sleeping. So how was that? Domestic. Although the people who are against her always have to mention. Because like, I was thinking of that shit. podcast we've been listening to, Blind Plea, yeah. where the yeah. woman went to prison because the guy who had been beating her all night and who had a loaded gun laid down on the couch for five minutes and she took the opportunity to shoot him. And that split second when you feel safe enough to do that because, you know, he's going to kill you otherwise. It's kind of this. Well, just like that case, the burning bad. That was right. from the, when the eight Right, the with 80s. Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, yeah, she played the like, And Paul, I mean, uh, what's his name? But it wasn't like this huge issue. In no, this no, it wasn't. But there was so much else. I mean, he he was not a sympathetic oh. victim. Chief Trafton said in Belfast, domestic violence is an almost daily occurrence. The most dangerous place for some people to live is their home. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be that way. Amber said, if it wasn't for my daughter, I would have committed suicide years ago. Some of the mental torture will never leave me for the rest of my life. It was so severe. It will be with me every day. Amber said when she first met James a decade before in Northern California, he was the nicest guy she ever met. She was 19 when they got married. It wasn't until I was pregnant that I began to see signs that something was wrong. Mm. End quote. And that, that does happen a lot is once they're pregnant or once you're well, married. Also, they didn't know each other for very long before she got pregnant well, you'll, see. Been... you'll see you'll okay. see we'll, and we'll have a lot to discuss uh, james cummings followed the rule book of coercive controlling abusers amber said he drove away her family members one by one amber's mother and sister would sneak over to her house and spy over the fence to watch clara ride her tricycle and play in the yard they weren't allowed in the house amber huh. said my mother would cry my sister would comfort her and say don't worry amber will be back one day james had a trust fund that reportedly had an annual income of 10 million dollars a year but amber said that most of it was depleted there was enough for clara's college fund but that was about it amber said i don't benefit at all from that Of course, the money was one of the things the investigators looked at when Amber shot James. You know, they knew that he had that money. And I'm sure that, I mean, you know, you don't blame him as part of their investigation. Was she shooting him to get the money? And she can't get it. It's the way a trust fund works. James had claimed the trustees of the estate were mismanaging funds, which is why he was suing them. This could be true, but James was also a control freak who probably wanted to be in control of the trust fund himself, thus the legal battle and settlement. When Amber talked to the BDN, it seemed like she still believed that the money mismanagement was all on the trustees' part. However, if James got $2 million settlement which is what i understand although it was never completely explained he could have gotten 10 million dollars but i think he settled for 2 million a decade before his death and it was almost gone who's mismanaging the money you know, you said earlier it was 10 million a year it was not reported very clearly right. i think it had an annual income of 10 million dollars a year see my guess would be but there... he sued them for control of it and his settlement was two million dollars that's the way i understand but two million dollars flat not a year yes because that seems an awful little compared to what i want to say is 
My guess is the reporter may have gotten it wrong, and it was a $10 million estate that, could be that too, he but, drew. And it kept I, being requoted that way, yes. Right, right. But wrong. what I'm saying is $10 million a year is an unbelievable amount of money for an estate. So what I'm guessing is it was a $10 million estate from which he drew an annual... That's It could be. That could from. be it, too. But even if he had $2 million... Right, that's a lot of money. Where the fuck is it? Well, uranium and stuff is expensive. <laughs> when Clara was five, the family moved from California to Texas for a couple of years. Then they drove around in a camper until August of 2007 when they bought a house in Belfast at Amber's request. According to newspaper reports, the house on High Street was bought through a Florida auction company. And of course, it was trash. It was a foreclosure. Right, because it was during the crisis. Amber said, my husband said that he hated people and that he didn't care where we moved. I always wanted to live in a nice small town in Maine. I don't know why. Maybe she liked murder, she wrote or something. Yeah. She was a native of Northern California, as was he. So I don't know. Amber spent most of her time working on the house following what the BDN called her husband's exacting specifications. Mm. Amber got James permission to join a homeschooling group. She was very proud of that fact that she got permission. However, James had his own lesson plan. He was teaching Clara, as we already heard some of it. And Amber also had assignments that she had to complete. Read certain books and practice speeches that espouse James' own white power and male rights philosophies. He said he wanted Amber to be able to recondition women and children after he declared war on the United States. Hmm. Amber said, basically, we were just isolated in the house. Things were getting increasingly worse. He talked a lot about killing the president. I worried about it every day. James wanted to build a torture chamber in the basement. Amber said he talked about killing people and, quote, peeling the skin off their bones. Oh, Jesus. James' eyes would go dark as he told Amber about his killing fantasies. She said he constantly talked about the different ways of killing and torturing people and hiding their bodies. He used to say it was a need in him. James started taking long walks around town. Amber said, when he would come home, I was terrified that would be the time he would kill somebody. It's no surprise that one of James' favorite shows was Dexter, the show about the serial killer who was a coroner in Miami or something. I've never watched it. Amber said, it was like seeing my family on TV. Have you ever watched that show? It never appealed no, to me. No, no interest. After killing James, Amber said she felt numb and she was in shock. She also had hallucinations. I woke up one night. He was choking me. In my dreams, it was so real. I'd be in a constant state of panic for a week. Despite her precarious mental and emotional state, Amber's main concern was her daughter. She wanted to deprogram Clara from the racist and violent crap James had been feeding her. Amber said, I hope to raise a really good kid who cares a, a lot about people. I hope she ends up strong and can take care of herself. I think she will. Amber was sure she was going to go to prison. That made her more desperate to help her daughter before Amber would be out of Clara's life. Amber wasn't afraid of prison itself. It was the thought of Clara being without her mom. Amber said, I thought it, meaning prison, would make me feel safe. A part of me really wanted to go to jail. That's where I really was for the last 10 years, in prison. When Justice Helm read Amber's sentence, she didn't get it at first. She had to look at the faces of the other people in the courtroom to see the responses before she understood she wasn't going to prison. I was very surprised. I expected to go away that day. I was prepared for it. 
I think really the sentence was to help my daughter. And I'm grateful for that. I don't think that was the only reason the judge, I think the judge really understood. I think so too. I mean, that was probably one of the things, but once the pressure was off, Amber was able to relax and learn to enjoy life. She did not want to be away from her daughter before she could make sure her daughter was deprogrammed. You know, daughter saying stuff like, oh, I'm going to have to build a bomb when I grow up to kill all the black. Quote, the little things are the best. Just sitting on the floor playing Legos with my daughter. That's pretty exciting. A lot of Belfast residents rallied around Amber. Although she was shy, she was a friendly person, and a lot of people sympathized with her situation and were horrified by what she and Clara had gone through. People gave Amber books about Buddhism and magazines like The Atlantic and The Sun in an attempt to counteract the years of Nazi and white supremacy dogma that James had forced on her. As Amber learned more about domestic abuse, she realized how common, albeit horrific, her circumstances had been. She said, he had every single one of the classic signs of an abuser. It was amazing. I was blown away. Amber said that men can be victims and women abusers too. Quote, Mm. anyone can be a victim. In theory, true. I feel like people always feel like they have to say that. As we know, the statistics are... That the huge majority of chronic abuse is done by men to female partners. And I feel like we have to say that because people always feel like they have to say, you know, women can be abusers and men can be abused. And it's true, but that kind of excuses the dynamic. And as long as the dynamic is excused, the problem isn't going to be solved. Amber did not finish her high school education, leaving school after 10th grade, but she wanted to work on her GED, which is the General Equivalency Diploma. And now it's the high set. For those of you not from our, yes, from our part of the world. Amber was back in touch with family in California. They were happy to resume their relationship after 10 years, but Amber didn't mind the stipulation that she had to stay in the state of Maine for the duration of her sentence. The Belfast community, along with her reunited family members, gave her and Clara a chance at a normal life, she said. Amber said, Belfast kind of adopted us and became our surrogate family. I'm thankful I ended up here. It was a strange twist of fate, but was probably one of the best things that happened to me and my daughter. And I'll say about Belfast, it is a fairly hippie-ish kind of town in a lot of ways. And I think it's lucky she was there instead of not just in Maine, but another part of the country where maybe James would have been more welcomed and his gross views would have been not as horrific right. to most people. Amber had a part-time job at the Fertile Mind Bookstore, mm. which was in the process of closing at the time of the article. It closed in January 2010. The couple that owned it retired. There was still a free Amber sticker on the counter at the front of the store when the reporter went to do the story. Bruce Hain, who owned the bookstore with his wife, LaRue Hain, said, I think there's a diversity to our community. People tend to accept other people. His wife, LaRue, said, we try to judge people by what we see in them. We take them at face value until we find out otherwise. Paula Struble, who owned Northport Redemption, met Amber at Belfast Variety a couple months after the shooting. Paula told the BDN, she looked scared, but she didn't look like a girl who could do anything wrong. She had an innocent look to her. I went up to her and said, are you the girl who shot her husband? Mm-hmm. When Amber said yes, Paula told her, good for you. Based, <laughs> on, based on what I saw in the paper, hey, there were a lot of people at risk here. Since that conversation, the two women struck up a close friendship. 
She's like a daughter. And though Amber had come a long way in a year, Paula said, she's got a lot more to go. I think of her as a rock in the ocean where the waves are coming back and forth, banging her and hitting her. All of a sudden, a ray of sunshine comes in and the rock just shines. She's been through a rough time, but she'll shine in the end. Around the same time of that article, an online survey in the BDN asked, do you know anyone who has been a victim of domestic violence? Out of the 477 respondents, 83 said yes, 17 mm. no. I think the 17 are probably... Um, don't know, necessarily. Yeah. After Amber Cummings' sentencing in January 2010, the Belfast Republican Journal had an article in which some of Amber's California relatives were interviewed. And a lot of the Bangor Daily News coverage, there was not much information on how James and Amber met. And of course, I had a lot of questions about how they met, why they married so young, stuff like that. That's why I gave a shout out to them because... At the beginning, the Bangor Daily, it's unclear how they met. Right. It's like, yeah, well, it's like, why don't you find out? can find out, right? There's no byline for the article in the Republican Journal, That's just the staff. In the article, Jenny Shattuck, Amber's cousin and childhood best friend, is interviewed. Jenny and Amber were raised together and grew up in California together. Jenny said, we lost touch with Amber for 10 years. It was like she disappeared. We thought that he, meaning James, had taken her away somewhere and killed her. When the news about Amber shooting James reached Jenny, her first thought wasn't about the shooting itself. Quote, we were just so glad she was alive. Jenny was in Maine with another cousin, Sherry Jobes, and some other relatives who came to the sentencing hearing to support Amber. They wore free Amber t-shirts or had free Amber stickers stuck to their clothes. Jenny was interviewed before the hearing, before she knew Amber would be avoiding incarceration. She told the Republican General she was grateful and astonished at the amount of support for Amber and the number of people who showed up at the courthouse to support her. A lot of the people had never met Amber before she shot James. Jenny said, everyone here loves Amber. We've had total strangers come up to us and tell us how awesome she is, and she loves it here. Jenny had first flown to Maine on December 14th, 2008. That was when Amber was indicted and turned herself in. Jenny was there to take custody of Clara while Amber spent a few days in jail until her bail hearing. It was the first time Jenny had seen her cousin in a decade. Jenny said, the day they got married was the last time I saw her. On her wedding day, Amber passed out, which to Jenny signified something was wrong. And Jenny was one of the few relatives of Amber who was even allowed to attend the wedding. Jenny was the one who introduced James to Amber. Mm. It wasn't long after James Sr. was murdered. James was 18 and living alone in his father's former home. Jenny was friends with James and would visit him at his house. She thought he was kind of weird. He had cameras in every room. He also had a lot of porn, weird porn like bestiality. Jenny brushed aside concerns, thinking James was slightly paranoid because of the way his dad was killed. And maybe the bizarre porn was just because James was sexually inexperienced and he was curious about a lot of things. Uh -huh. And I'm like, no, no, I don't think that's it. I mean, the cameras maybe, but no. BCLA right, porn? I, yeah. yeah. Maybe if you're curious, you look at it once, but you don't have a collection of it. Jenny said he was homeschooled and he never really had been out in society. And by the way, I didn't find anything much about James's family other than his father. There was no mention in any of the articles about James Sr.'s death about a wife or any family, except for that one article where it said that James Jr. had taped his mother supposedly doing drugs i didn't find any mention of his mother when james jr died or anything about any family he had it was just weird 
The fact that James Jr. was homeschooled and kept from society, as Jenny said, makes me wonder about James Sr. I can guess that he wasn't much different than his son. Jenny said that she and James were casual friends for a few months. She stopped by his house one day to borrow something with Amber in tow. Shortly after that, Jenny moved out of town for a year. Quote, when I came back, they were together. Jenny had a lot of reservations about her cousin Amber's boyfriend. She wasn't close friends with James, but she knew him well enough to think he was a little off. The cameras, the porn, and sometimes he said weird stuff, and she wasn't sure if he was being serious or joking. For instance, James offered Jenny a large amount of money if she would have a baby with him. Jenny said, I was like 19, so I was like, no way. Later, Jenny learned that the trust fund from James Sr.'s estate had a provision that James Jr. would get more money per month if he was married and had a child. Ah. Jenny said, Amber always said she just wanted a family that she could raise. That was his in. Mm -hmm. Another thing Jenny revealed was that Amber had been sexually abused as a child. Jenny felt, and I agree, that James used Amber's insecurity and emotional fragility from the abuse to manipulate her. She wouldn't say no to anyone, Jenny said. After the wedding, Jenny didn't see her cousin for 10 years and only spoke to her once in 1999 when Clara was born. Jenny said Amber was so happy, she said she didn't know she could love that much. But Amber had to hang up abruptly when James came in the room, screaming at Amber that he didn't want her family to know about the baby. When Jenny saw Amber again after 10 years and they caught up, Jenny realized just how much Amber and Clara had endured at the hands of James Cummings. Jenny said he burned all her family pictures. Amber had furniture and quilts from her grandmother that James also burned. Anything connected to Amber's life in California was destroyed. Jenny and Amber were practically raised by their grandmother. When the grandmother died a few years after Jenny left town, James would not allow Amber to go to the funeral. Jenny described the house in Belfast as a shrine to Adolf Hitler. There were no toys or family photos on the walls. Instead, there were swastika flags, photos of Hitler, and other Nazi memorabilia displayed throughout. As I said before, Clara wasn't allowed to go to school or see a doctor, and he was indoctrinating the child into his fucked up belief system. Jenny told the Republican Journal a story about how when she was taking care of Clara after the killing when Amber was in jail, she and the girl were walking through the lobby of a hotel when they passed by a black man. Clara backed into a corner and started to hyperventilate. Jenny asked Clara what was wrong. Clara told Jenny that James had taught her that black people are digitally imaged by Jewish people so they can walk and talk like white people. But President Obama could walk and talk without being digitally imaged because he had a white mother. James taught Clara that she was not to show emotion because one day she, Clara, would eventually take James' place as one of Hitler's soldiers. There were no holidays celebrated, no Christmas or birthdays or anything. Clara had never played games and had to be taught how to play with other kids. When James and Amber were driving around the country in the RV after they left California, James would make Amber drive. When they saw a young woman, Jenny said, he would say things like, oh, that little girl looks like you. Let's rape her and kill her. Jenny said Amber took the abuse from James to keep him away from Clara. Everything Amber did was for Clara. She pled guilty so Clara would not have to testify, Jenny said. When Jenny and the other relatives saw Amber again after all those years, they hardly knew her. Jenny said she was wearing his clothes and she just looked like a zombie. Both Jenny and Sherry, 
Amber's other cousin, along with all the relatives, felt that Amber was a different person than the girl they used to know. But they were happy she was part of their lives again, and they hers. They wanted to support her and help her and Clara recover. The fact that Amber and Clara had survived and were now healing and even thriving, Jenny said, it's like heaven. It's like a dream. I can't believe it, Sherry Jope said. As for Amber, I didn't find anything about what she's doing now online. There's a right-wing activist in California with the same name, and I was worried for a minute, but then I looked her up. That Amber Cummings is a trans woman who is extremely right-wing and thankfully not the same Amber Cummings. I'm assuming that Amber Cummings from my story has finished her sentence and she and Clara are living their lives as private citizens. And I'm hoping those lives are productive, happy, and healthy. And that is the end of my story. Oh, that's good. I was in New Hampshire at the time, but I just have very vague, like the bomb part of the stuff. I don't I'm remember a very even, vague... I don't know how I don't remember. I was just thinking it was after I wrote this and when I was rereading it as earlier today. I just wonder about his father's death. They blamed that guy. I was wondering the same thing. He supposedly confessed. How do you know? Well, we know how people confess. It makes you wonder. I don't know much about his father, but that one, like, oh, he's a colorful person. Read between the lines of that. But that other guy said he was a nut and he was violent. He was a gun nut. And the fact that James Jr. was raised, it sounds like the same way. It's scary what could have happened if Amber Hannett killed him. Also thinking back, looking back on things, and also with the perspective of January 6th, 2021, I'm amazed that nobody was able to kill Obama or that nothing bad ever happened while he was president. Because all these people have come out of the they were always here. I do wonder too now how different perceptions of him would have been nowadays when people know more about coercive control and manipulation like this thing oh well he was mentally ill kind of writes off a lot of his behavior that i think was intentional behavior not mental illness no he's an asshole it doesn't matter there's lots of a lot of people with schizophrenia that weren't assholes i have yet i think to see a guy who walks around in a duster coat and cowboy hat who isn't an asshole (laughs) when she was sentenced in 2010 that's around the time i was looking to move back to maine i wanted to live in belfast i still would like to live in belfast and for people who don't know, it's a small city on the Maine's mid coast. It's a very cute, it's a nice, it's a nice little town. city. It's, yeah, it's artsy too. Right. She is lucky she landed in Maine because a lot of places, it, things would have worked out a lot. And I don't want to disparage any other states, but there are other states that are a lot more right wing. She probably would have gone to prison. He could have gotten away with acting the way he did without as many people. Right disliking him it's not really the same thing but i was at i was with some other authors at the brunswick art walk last month and brunswick is another mid-coast city farther south of belfast these two women who came up to look at our books it was a lesbian couple and they had a daughter who looked to be in her mid to early teens who had developmental issues and they told me that they had lived in eight different states in the last 10 years or something because they were moving all around the country looking for a welcoming place that had services 
and a good atmosphere for their daughter. Oh. And that's why they moved to Maine. There's a place called Spindleworks in Brunswick. Yes. And they yeah. make great, like I got Liz a really nice chenille scarf. The programs for developmentally disabled people and stuff. But also they, as two gay women, they said it's the best place they've ever lived. People are friendly and welcoming. They've lived nice. all over the country from the Southwest to the you know mid-atlantic and florida and all sorts of other places like i said eight i think it was eight states in 10 years or something and so i think there's a lot to be said for maine one of the things is even though geographically it's bigger than the other new england states it's got kind of the small town thing there's like three degrees of separation between everybody in maine people know each other and i think it operates in a small town way mostly the good aspects of a small town way where people are care about people as part of a community because it's a smaller community than a lot of other states and i think that there are in the state there are more right there are conservative right but i also feel like even 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 right wing people that i know are more a little more easy go and not easy going but they're they're not they they don't they don't stick their nose in if they know if they see this gay couple they're like yeah whatever so like that asshole who recently moved here and he was in that globe story but he was on the news too he was going to try to make maine some kind of ethno white state i can't remember what the term is like he lewiston who has a somali population that's now gone back a few generations and he went there and tried to get things worked up and i think he must have looked at the stats and said oh here's one of the whitest states in the nation this will be good for me and he came here and he's got no momentum whatsoever because people just are not having it it's like don't come to our state and it's not like i don't encounter i don't deal with as many people on a daily basis as i used to but i used to encounter a lot of people that said racist shit i mean there are racist yeah it's not that there aren't racist yeah i don't think it's tolerated i think as a whole in general there is racism and there is systemic racism and stuff but i think things like that have more trouble getting traction. But Nazis, I don't think Nazis are generally no. tolerated in Maine. No, Although we did no. have a large Ku Klux Klan right. about a hundred years ago. And that New England Nazi thing that, again, that Boston Globe coincidentally story today was about, they do have sections in Maine, but a lot of it seems to be people who have moved here from other places to do this. Yeah. Not people, and I'm not saying people who are from here. I mean, there's a bunch of people, guys, of course, all of them, <laughs> Who have been busted for the January 6th shit. You know, there are idiots everywhere. Yeah. But it's not like it's even the most liberal state, but I think because it's a small population state that has that community sense, yeah. it's not so much politics and ideology is how people interact. It's how people interact. If they get to know you, they're more likely to support you. And also right. just, I mean, there are sometimes, and we've talked about it in some of our other episodes, sometimes, you know, people from away, they don't like them. But I think when it comes to a matter of this couple, the woman was nice and friendly. When it comes to her versus him, they didn't know him and the people that did know him didn't like him so and the issue with people from away isn't people in Maine hate people from away it's when people from away come in and want to change things or went well where i come from we do it this way kind of thing and make it clear they're from away you know i work a few hours a week at the local bookstore and you can tell immediately who they are by the entitled way they act and that's the issue Mm -hmm. 
that Mainers have a thing with when, yeah. oh, you can't be from away in Maine if you weren't born here. And it's like, no, if you're entitled, if you come in here and you're entitled and you act like you're better than other people or you want to change the fabric of the community or want things done the way they do them where you come from and stuff, that's what people have an issue with. I think I had a lot of bad experiences when I worked at Mr. Paperback, a bookstore, especially the one in Bangor. I used to work every Sunday morning and um, there were summer people in that area for some reason. And they would want the New York Times. Coming from the lakes, yeah. The Times. The first thing. And it's like, this is Bangor. It comes on a truck. Even if it comes on a plane, it comes on a plane and then it goes uh, by truck. No, we're not going to have it first thing. Right. Just today there was a woman in summer person from somewhere else complaining and she's like oh the big problem with being here is so remote when you need anything it takes so long to get there and augusta just to be clear is a 20 minute drive south and there are cities in this country where you can drive 20 minutes and still be in the same city wherever she's from there are times you have to drive 20 minutes to get something but also if it weren't this quote-unquote remote she wouldn't be coming here for her vacation i know and it happens any place it's a beautiful place where tourists come they love vacationing there and then they move there and try to change it to be like where they came right from. taking away everything that you like about this but anyway so do you have a an nnw yes yes i do <laughs> this is an audiobook i just resubscribed to audible Good. and there's another one libro that i'm gonna subscribe to too that supports local bookstores Ooh. that has a lot of the same stuff audible does but i just really really needed an audiobook because i couldn't find any podcasts and i was I was when i was driving to new hampshire for our family reunion last weekend and needed to listen to something that was gonna last almost three hours and i didn't want to have to line up so it's a long story but anyway i like listening to true crime nonfiction audiobooks because okay. it's like listening to a long podcast This one came out this year. It's called Vanished in Vermilion. Mm. And it's by Lou Raguse, who was a TV reporter in South Dakota. And then I think he moved to Minnesota, but he was there in the early 2000s. And it's a story I know I saw on Dateline or somewhere. When I started listening to it, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember. But I couldn't remember how it ended. And even if I could remember how it ended, he still did a great job. The thing you'll remember if you saw it on Dateline, so it was 1971, And these two girls, teenage girls, were looking for a party, a specific party in these gravel pits outside their town in South Dakota. And they were following this car with these boys in it who said, oh, just follow us. Because you had to take these turns on these country roads. Mm -hmm. At one point, the boys looked behind and the girl's car wasn't there anymore. Uh Uh-oh. Did you see that? No. Okay. And I don't want to give away what happened. It took almost 50 years to solve the case. And I'll just go through the NNW. It was two girls, Sherry Miller and Pam Jackson were the names of the girls. It was the end of their junior year in high school. And they were both good girls. Pam, I think it was Pam, lived with her grandparents and borrowed her grandfather's 1960 Studebaker Lark to drive. And they just disappeared. Bad reenactments. It was a book slash audio book. So no reenactments. So no points off. Narrative cliches. No, it was extremely well written. I sometimes cringe in true crime books. I get tired of all the cliches and shit. And I know I make fun of TV reporters. This guy's a very, very, not only a very good journalist, 
but a really good critical thinker. Even though this is two young girls who disappeared and something horrible probably happened to them, there aren't any narrative cliches. There may have been some cliches. It was a fairly long book, but pretty much cliche-free. Lack of good visuals. I know it was an audio book, hmm. but I'm taking away half a point. <laughs> At first, I'm lack of good visuals. I'm not going to do anything because it's an audio book. Then I'm like, but is a regular book does it have photos or not? And I went online to find out because I'm like, gee, I'd almost buy the paperback, although it's probably not out yet, if there were photos, because I want to look at the photos. Then I realized, oh, wait, he has a website, Vanished in Vermilion, which I urge you not to look at if you are going to listen to or read this, because the visuals are pictures of each of the girl, various photos of them, Various photos of the main suspect, mm. and then photos that will completely give away what happened. Those are spoilish. And I would have loved to see a map of where the roads yes. that they were taking and where this one farm that was key to what was going on and other stuff was. It's probably unfair, a book of this quality, to take away half a point. But I do feel like audiobooks should have some website or something you can go to, which he did. Four photos, because you're paying more for the audiobook than you pay for a paperback, but not getting the photos you would get. I know. I, I know you I can like supposedly go online, but it's hard to dig them up. And I like to look at the pictures. Missing pieces, I'm also taking away half a point. Nothing major, but a couple little things. He had talked about a thing in Oklahoma where these cars with each car had three sets of skeletonized remains were found in a lake or a river or something in Oklahoma right next to each other. And the my assumption is they accidentally drove in. And this was Oklahoma. This had nothing to do with this case, but he brings mm -hmm. it up. Well, I would be interested to know, so did they just drive in accidentally or whatever? And these are people who have been considered missing for a long time. And he never says. Hmm. And I know it's a small thing that really doesn't have anything to do with this case, but I just still want to know, was there foul play? And also... If you watched, and I can't remember, it must have been Dateline, they spent a lot of time on the girls following the boys in their car and when they disappeared and what the boys were doing and all this kind of stuff. This book, while that is a crucial part of it, doesn't talk about it a lot. And then towards the end, it does a little more. Only one of those boys was ever interviewed by the cops <laughs> there's more i wanted about that more than what he had i mean there was a lot to this a lot more to the story than you'd think but i would have liked to, so only half a point for missing pieces there inaccuracies and anachronisms no mm -hmm. despite the fact that it happened in 1971 and then was revived as a cold case in the early 2000s and i think that's when he was a tv reporter and started covering it it's easy for people to make assumptions especially when they're writing a book based on what they know now about yeah. what should have happened in 1971 or something. And he is very good about keeping the time frame straight and, and not making 21st century assumptions about nice. 1971. So storytelling, no points off. In fact, I would add points if that Ooh. were a thing. Because he really, really, really does a great job. And one of the best things about this book, there is no propaganda whatsoever he's refreshingly cynical about the cops and they did a horrible investigation starting with the usual oh these girls probably took off with some boys even though one Ugh. of the girls left their paycheck on the kitchen table at home one of them's grandmother was in the hospital dying and she never would have take off and missed her funeral and all this kind of stuff the cops did a horrible job from beginning to end he takes on 
without the stupid ignorance that you usually see, polygraphs, repressed memories, hypnosis, Ooh. the read technique, uh. all sorts of stuff. He doesn't give the cops a fucking inch, and it's so refreshing. And he even goes into this one suspect, how they ripped apart the home of these people. This guy lived with his parents, his mother in her 80s and stuff. They destroyed the home. They destroyed shit that they didn't need to destroy and all this, and how they didn't clean it up and all this stuff. And you often don't hear that. He he makes a lot of great points about that. He doesn't pull any punches. This could have been solved within a week or days after the girls disappeared. And because of the idiocy of police and all the mistakes they made, not only back in 1971, but when they reopened it as a cold case and tunnel vision and all sorts of other stuff, and it turned out it wasn't the cops that solved it at all, basically. Mm. And even now, the cops still think this guy that they hounded probably had something to do with it. And he makes the very good point, because I get so tired of all the copaganda, he makes a very good point that, so to police, is truth reality? Or is truth just the most likely theory that they can prove? Yeah. Well, that kind of may sound like an obvious thing. It's something to think about, that they're not necessarily looking for the truth, and the prosecution isn't. They want something they can win. They want to, what theory can we prove, even if we have to twist around the facts? And it's kind of funny, because now I'm listening to another audio book of, of another crime, a death penalty case, and I'm also reading a whole different book, and all three of them, it just blows my mind how ignorant the cops are and how egotistical they are and how unwilling they are to actually look at evidence from the start. I get so tired of people, oh, cops have it so hard and there are some good cops. Until this shit is fixed, it's not. Yeah. All this read technique shit. And everything. So anyway, I... the writer does the reading too. I kept waiting for him to annoy me with some conclusion or something. And as far as I can remember, he didn't say one thing that annoyed nice. me. You know how rare that is yes how easily annoyed you are freshness i'm not taking away any points it was very fresh it's a case i was very slightly familiar with and i only remembered it because of the car following the other car mm -hmm. and he does a great job just telling the story in a fresh way a repetition no beating the drum no so that is nine points i highly Ooh. recommend the audiobook, he reads his own book. And because he's a TV reporter, you know, it's a better yeah. reading than... Yes. Um, it's not, like, totally actor voice thing, but which I like. I like hearing the guy who wrote it read it. So I highly recommend the book Vanished in Vermilion by Lou Raguse. The audiobook I recommend. I'm sure reading the actual book would be good. I might buy it at some point and reread it. I'm glad that I read it and I kind of miss it now that I'm done. I, I want to be his friend. When I get a credit, yeah, I'll yeah, get it. Definitely do because I want to discuss it more with you, but I don't want to give any spoilers. Yeah, I know. It. it sounds and, interesting. And don't look at the pictures. But anyway, I guess we should go because it's late. Yes. I know you're weary. I know your plans. Your plans don't include don't me. Include me. That's for sure. Yeah. And we'll try to get back on schedule. It's just hard a lot going on but we i'm a mom <laughs> and I'm not, thank God. we have to yeah. say goodbye okay well thanks for listening thank you everybody good night we'll see you next time <laughs> lieutenant gary wright head of the main state police criminal investigation division told the bangor daily news 
I was looking up a song because I want you to put an extra. Gary Wright? No. Oh. Gary Wright? What song? Dreamweaver? Um, Dreamweaver. Dream 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 